how to start? Well, you know, it's just writing. I mean, here's something important to remember about dialogue. Every word matters. No, it doesn't. They're bottom. I want to go to this place that I think it needs to go to. The only thing that counts is what you see on the screen. I will write like four or five, six hours a day. And it will be a voice made of ink and rage. Okay, I'm, re I'm really glad you asked me that question. Welcome to the Creative Principles Podcast. I'm your host, Brock Swinson. Over the past 200-plus episodes, I've had the good fortune of speaking with dozens of screenwriters, actors, and directors, such as Aaron Sorkin, Mel Brooks, Carrie Fukunaga, Whitney Cummings, Michael Imperioli, and William Monaghan, among others. We've dissected ideas on story, character, filmmaking, habits, and various principles for creative life. If this is your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also find several of these interviews on the Creative Screenwriting Magazine website, in addition to some that aren't available in audio, such as with Nick Kroll or Stephen Merchant. In addition to the podcast, also make sure to search for the new video essay series on YouTube, also called Creative Principles, where we take a deep dive into movies and television. Join millions of viewers for subjects like the 16 personalities expressed as characters, Did Home Alone, Rowan John Hughes' Career, The Greatest Movie Never Made, and How Jackie Chan Creates Perfection Through Failure, among many more. That's Creative Principles on YouTube. After working as a writer-director on her first film, Timer, Jack Schaefer discovered she could land more jobs as a screenwriter with this on her resume. The description of Timer reads, If a clock could count down on the moment you meet your soulmate, would you want to know? After this film, she worked on a handful of screenplays, created a short called Mr. Stash, and even worked on the short Olaf's Frozen Adventure for Disney. This relationship, plus a blacklist spec script, eventually led her to working on The Hustle, WandaVision, and Black Widow. WandaVision, where she's the creator, blends the style of classic sitcoms with the MCU in which Wanda, Maximoff, and Vision, two superpowered beings living in ideal suburban lives, begin to suspect that everything is not as it seems. In her latest film, Black Widow, follows Natasha Romanoff, Scarlett Johansson from the Avengers films, as she confronts the darker parts of her ledger when a dangerous conspiracy that ties her back to her past. First, I wanted to direct, like when I was a kid, that's what I was into. Um, and and that was my goal. And I, um, and I got into writing so that I would have something to direct. Um, and um, and I, I directed a feature um, in... 2009 um that was something that i wrote and i also produced um and then after that it was it was strangely easier to get work as a writer than um than as a director so um so that became something that i um increasingly did and then and then it was really on wandavision that i sort of understood that in tv the sort of synthesis of all the different roles um in in running a room is is what's really so fun what was kind of the story behind timer like how did you um pitch that movie and attach yourself as director well i i um i came up with the concept and wrote it myself um and um it was it was born of the like sort of my frustration in the dating world and my, my brother was getting married and um you know i was happy for him but <laughs> i was like i didn't have a date and i was feeling really frustrated and i thought if i 
if I could just know that like there was somebody out there for me eventually, then I could like relax and go and be a good bridesmaid and like, you know, <laughs> and not, and not be sullen through the whole experience. And, you know, I thought that that was a fun concept and I was really inspired by, um, eternal sunshine of the spotless mind and the way that that is just, a, you know, it's just an imaginative movie. It didn't, it didn't need sort of all the near future bells and whistles of like neoprene sparkling white outfits and fancy screens and stuff like that. And so it just seemed kind of doable. So I, um, I partnered with a friend from film school um, and we made the movie, you know, entirely independently. We found some private, private equity capital, you know, people who were outside of the industry and, um, and yeah, we made it, we made it on our own. Um, and and it was a blast. That was sort of the last thing that I did that was um, where the, the voices on it were just me and my friends. Mm. Awesome. I see. So tell me about the short you did, Mr. Stash, then also kind of what led your connection or your, your employment with Disney and Marvel. I, so the short that I made um, is called Mr. Stash. And that, that was something that was, it was, it was an unusual circumstance. Um, American Express, it was the founding partner of the Tribeca Film Festival and my film Timer had premiered at Tribeca and I had a really wonderful relationship with them. Um, and they hired me to do this sort of, it was sort of like a promotional piece um, for the 10 year anniversary of the Tribeca Film Festival. So it was, a, it was an incredibly well-funded short that we did um and it was it was really a pleasure to return to um short filmmaking after making a feature um you know to sort of keep something bite-sized like the, a, a bite-sized vision in your head as opposed to you know a sprawling feature um so that was really fun and and i got to work with really talented um people on that um and then yeah and it you know right after timer i spent the subsequent year year and a half um, figuring out the release. We did a self-release and that was at a time where everything was kind of topsy-turvy in the distribution space. And so we were carving out all the different platforms and the streamers weren't really a thing yet, but they kind of were a thing. And so we were one of the early titles on Netflix before it was really Netflix. And so I, I, um, so during that time, you know, the, they say I went to film school and in film school that, you know, the golden rule is like, you always have your next thing ready. You always have your next script ready. And I, I didn't, um, I super broke that rule because I put everything that I had um, into my feature. Um, so, so the, you know, the short came along and that was sort of a gift at the time. And then, and then, yeah, I was, I was doing writing assignments. I was, you know, getting in the WGA and, and doing revisions and, and that kind of like gig work. Um, and I got really frustrated because I really wanted to be directing and I couldn't get a second feature going. Um, so then I wrote a script um, out of that frustration. Um, it's called The Shower, um, and it um, and it got on the blacklist. and And that script got me in a lot of rooms, and it led to um, I did this thing called Olaf's Frozen Adventure, um, which is um, part of the Frozen properties, um, and and that got me in the room at Marvel, and everything sort of. Um, I sort of had a second act of my career based on this spec script that got a lot of attention. What kind of started to change for you as you're working on things that really need, maybe, especially Marvel, I'm sure it needs to be approved by dozens of people, if not more, but you also wrote The Hustle, which is a reboot of Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, I think. Tell me kind of how you, what was it like for you from going from Timer, which is completely yours, and also The Shower, 
to ideas that need to be approved by a committee to a degree? It's, it's, a, it's a very different space. I mean, um, and my personal philosophy is, you know, when it's my work, when it's my original idea, if it's something that I created on my own, then I get to be precious about it and I get to control it as much as I want to. You know, really, when you have a property that's entirely your own, if you want to get it made, you're going to have to surrender sort of portions of control and power along the way. But you can do that sort of shrewdly. You know, you can, if you go for the big money, you kind of surrender the whole thing. But if you're more interested in retaining creative control, then you can do that and hope that there's money on the other side. Um, so so when it's an original thing, I, <clears throat> I have sort of like a more of a vice-like grip on on the creative decisions. Um, but the hustle was a great experience because it was not a labor of love at all. Um, I, I had met Rebel Wilson because the spec that I wrote, there was she, she enjoyed it and wanted to meet with me and we had a great meeting and it was something that she was developing and she hired me, which like, it, it was a project that came together faster than anything I'd ever seen. Um, she has really great ambition and momentum and is a is a producer who makes things happen um and you know i i had a lot of affection for dirty rotten scoundrels but it wasn't you know it wasn't a big part of my sort of like like it wasn't part of my soul in terms of you know the movies that really like matter to me in in like the deepest part of myself like it was just a movie that i loved with my family and so the the sort of creative artistic pressure was less the intention was to make something fun and funny. Um, and the challenge was writing for Rebel. Um, not, not that it was a challenge that was difficult, it just was something new for me. It was a new skill set, I should say, is writing writing for her voice and her brand. Um, and and that that's sort of where that began, that and Olaf, and then I kind of honed it at Marvel. Is so so the sort of long answer to your question is there's my original work, but then when I'm in these other spaces like Marvel or the Frozen franchise or or a, or a, a talent like Rebel who has a very specific voice, I'm, I'm writing for that. I'm writing for these stories that already exist, these personalities that already exist. It's, it's sort of a costume to be put on. Um, and where I, what I try to do inside that space is, is find what kind of lights me up and gets me excited and, and aligns with my creative and, you know, and my sort of value system agenda. So tell me a little about how you got involved with WandaVision. It's definitely, you know, one of the most innovative things we've seen kind of come out of something as big as Marvel. It, it's kind of a, some, some of that's obviously there. It's a transition point, I think, to Dr. Strange and some of that else. But tell me about your early involvement with it. Sure. I, so I had been, um, I, I met at Marvel way back um, and, and my schedule was full at the time and I couldn't sort of pursue anything with them. Um, and, um, but I, you know, I, I knew some of the people there and obviously admired the work. And then I was invited after the hustle, um, I was invited to pitch on Black Widow. Um, and I, I won that job and worked on that script um, for a time and at the same, and then sort of segued and they invited me to to do some work on Captain Marvel and I did that. And, and so it was about a year that I was in the Marvel world kind of learning how they do things and, 
and and learning the universe and the mythology. Um, and then I had heard that WandaVision was happening, that that Kevin had had, Kevin Feige had had this idea about Wanda and Vision and the and the history of of classic TV sitcoms and 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 using that as a device to um, to examine her character's you know intense history of loss, and I was I was just like <laughs> you know I what do I what do I, where do I sign like what do I what room do I need to be in in order to be considered for this job. Um, and yeah, and they and they invited me to pitch, and it was it was the biggest pitch I'd ever done because I, it was you know it was one of their first shows, and the pitching that I'd done for them before, you know, you go in and you pitch an entire movie. It's 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 laborious and and um, intensive, and so I pitched a whole series because I kind of didn't know how else to do it, um, um, and and was lucky enough to to win the job. Um, and then, yeah, and then we were, you know, putting a room together and hiring a, direct, hiring a director and and making a show, which is the greatest. How did you guys go about, you know, choosing some of the like homages? Like, I mean, I think you started with Dick Van Dyke and people will point out different episodes. Was Is it just like, we believe these are the most popular shows of all time? Or what was that like as far as the history of television? Right, it, it actually wasn't that we, um, Early on, my 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 initial pitch was was uh, went through the um, went through TV history chronologically as per like a, a sort of a very similar structure to what actually made it um, into the show, but um, but there were more there were more shows and they were a little bit more all over the map in terms of some were workplace and some had like a little genre element and and once I was hired and we started putting the show together. Um, we realized that we needed to have some discipline about which shows we were emulating. Um, and we all felt committed to the chronological move um, because, because we so strongly wanted to start in black and white. Um, um, and so what we ended up doing was the first decision was, uh, was to tether, was, was to stick to aspirational family sitcoms. Um, we went in a few directions of, you know, sort of the Norman Lear thing. And we went down a road of, you know, Wanda as a working mom and Wanda and feminism and, and you know, those those Norman Lear shows, you know, all in the family, like they were so topical. And and we we sort of explored that a little bit and then realized that 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 we were crowding the field. You know, we had the whole pop-up based storyline. We in and it was it became a little overstuffed. Um, so we decided that that aspirational family sitcoms would would keep us kind of on a track that wouldn't muddy the waters too much. Um, and so then from there, we just looked at the eras and, and we had like three to four touchstones per era. Um, I mean, some of them kind of come to the fore more strongly because of the visuals. I mean, the Brady Bunch house is the Brady Bunch house. Um, but, but we were, if you, you know, if you kind of comb over each episode, you can see, you know, there's the Partridge family is in there and good times is in there. And, um, and especially with the music, you know, um, Bobby and Kristen, like are such savants with their influences. So if you pick apart the music, you can, you know, hear the influences of, of so many things like the, um, 
the episode number two, which is kind of considered the bewitch episode, you know, it's also I Dream of Jeannie, you know, like, so, um, so that's, that's how we went about that. Um, and then of course, I mean, if you, if you were to speak to Mayas Rubio, um, who did the wardrobe and, um, and Mark Worthington, who was production design, like, I mean, they can talk for years about how they synthesized all those different influences. So it seems like with something like that, and correct me if I'm wrong, that you would even, you know, single cam, multi-cam, some of those different aspects as it's changed, even hire directors based on that style. Was there any point where, I mean, Elizabeth Olsen and Paul Bettany are amazing, but were they intimidated by having to do all of that different styles of acting and everything? Well, I mean, I can't entirely speak um, for them, but I have done a lot. I mean, I've spent a lot of time with them. So maybe, sure, I'll just speak for them. (laughs) I know that they were both intimidated by the live studio audience. Um, It wasn't something, you know, neither one of them had been on a sitcom before. So that was foreign to them. And, you know, it's intimidating to be in front of an audience in such a bizarre way and that and and there's so many levels to the show and the and especially the in the pilot the comedy is you know the the jokes are dick van dyke style jokes but it's also it's within the world of marvel humor is derived from who these two characters are as we know them so it's it's just a little left of center and so i think there was there there was some nervousness about like, is the audience going to laugh? Um, and they did. I mean, they were, the audience was like totally delighted. They, they had the best time. We also, you know, we invited them to, to dress up in 1950s clothes. And so there was a really, you know, kind of effervescent buoyant atmosphere to that day that we did the live taping. Um, but in terms of, you know, the, the, all the different styles, um, both Paul and Lizzie, Lizzie are incredibly, and Catherine and Tiana are are incredibly diligent actors. Um, Lizzie, in particular, is is, and I didn't really understand this until this show. You know, I, I had been a fan of hers, but I sort of in, in watching her do this role, she's an incredibly physical actor. Um, you know, the the Scarlet Witch stuff, the the all of those like hand gestures and all of her sort of. Um, um, uh, expressions of power. She has a choreographer. She has this wonderful woman who helps her choreograph all of that work. And she applied that same work ethic and philosophy to the, the physicality of these shows. And, and women, you know, have through the ages of television, the, their sort of posture and, and style of movement has changed so dramatically and is so indicative of of how women were viewed um, through the decades. So that that was really fascinating. And then Paul is just like, he, he I have always known him as a, as a comedic actor. I mean, I know him from Knight's Tale and, and I know him from Wimbledon. And like, I, I, it was very easy to write for him. I can hear his voice and his rhythm in my head even before, I mean, we're, we're dear friends now, but before that it was just, it was, it was like, like butter. It was just so, it was so easy and so great. Um, and I think he, he, there's something very classic about Paul. Um, you know, like he, he, like he looks like he could be in a David Lean, um, film. So yeah, they just, they just had it in them. And then they also had the work ethic to, to pull it off with, with such an authenticity. Mm. So with this type of show, like tell me a little about the writer's room. Did you have to kind of compartmentalize how, you know, let's talk about the overall story, what has to happen by the end in terms of the, you know, the regular Marvel universe. And then let's break down each episode. Like, how did you kind of separate all those things? 
It was, so one of the beautiful things about the, this being a limited series is we always knew what the end was. Um, it was, it was always about getting, um, Wanda to a place of acceptance. Um, and that, and, and I mapped in my pitch, I mapped the show to the stages of grief. Um, so, so that, that was, we were lucky with that, that we knew the basic arc of the show. Um, what was challenging was how to sort of parse out all these little, all the sort of, you know, the, the mythology and kind of the puzzle box of the show when, when the truth of the show is peeking out and when we, then the way that we went about it is we, I mean, first what we did is like in the early, early days is we all became, you know, students of sitcoms. Like it's all, it's in our bones. Like it's in our DNA, especially as writers like that. It, we didn't sort of have to, um, study it in a general way, but we, you know, we spent days putting like listing tropes and listing, you know, favorite episodes and, and trope episodes. And like, you know, there's the, we get a pet and there's the talent show and there's, you know, so we did all of that it was, it was kind of, it felt sort of like scientific work. Um, and, and in that work, there came, you know, the ideas of like, what if, what if, you know, Agatha is like, do you want me to take that again? You know, like, what if she steps out of it? What if, what if this happens? Like we were constantly trying to find ways to examine the format of sitcoms. And then like, what is the coolest, weirdest, most unexpected way, unexpected way to shatter that format? Um, so that was, that was like early days, everybody just using their awesome brains to be weird. Um, but then, but then the, you know, the real rigor, um, that we had to apply was with, it was with staging and, and, and building the, the mystery of it. So we had a system, we had, um, that we called them like get out or um, we called them mostly we called them get out moments um, or weirdnesses or step out moments. And it was, they, they we, we classified them by type. Um, so there was the ones that had to do that were born of Wanda subconscious. So that's things like her looking and seeing visions head caved in. Um, there were ones that were sword intrusions, things that were because of action sword had taken things like the drone showing up in her rose bushes. Um, and then there were moments of the, the townspeople, these are, these are the get out moments where, where they, they're true selves, their like actual psychology kind of bubbles up or comes to the surface for various reasons. Um, and then, and then the fourth one, which was kind of the trickiest one is like all of Agatha's, you know, kind of mischievous doings in the background, especially it got complicated when we knew we were going to have her fake certain things, you know, when she pretends that when they're in the, in the Halloween episode, when she's in the car and vision wakes her up, we, we really, we thought that was such a delicious opportunity, especially once Catherine Hahn had been cast of the like acting upon acting upon acting. Um, so yeah, so we, we had a system of, of, of plotting all of those different types of, of weird moments of weirdnesses and, and trying to figure out like, what is the best way to, to structure them across the episodes. And then um, at the risk of really going on too long, 
we had these big moments. We knew, we call it the, um, the hex flex when, when Wanda steps out of the hex and gives her warning to Hayward and sword. Um, we, you know, when we came up with that, the idea like early in the series that she would leave the hex and we would get to see it, you know, that like, we were like, okay, this is a moment where are we putting this on the board? Like in this, in the scope, like which episode does this belong in? And the thing that I learned about TV writing, um, that I did that someone had told me about and I didn't I didn't entirely understand it until I, I went through the process myself was you know you break a season and then you and then you go back and do it again and you go back and you do it again and every time you go back you know the thing that you that you the flag that you planted in episode six uh, you're upon your next revision that moves into episode five and then you do another revision and then it moves into episode four do you know what I mean like you're constantly pulling up your big moments because you have to reckon with the fact that you're like, it's filler in between these things. And if you want every episode to, to be impactful and stand on its two feet, you know, like you got it, you can't, you can't sort of like hold back your good stuff. Um, okay. I'm going to stop talking now. That was a lot. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> so I spoke with um, Malcolm Spellman, who's the the showrunner for Falcon and Winter Soldier. He kind of described it as like, we can pitch ideas and then Marvel will kind of say yes or no. Like you can't just like, and then Spider-Man shows up. You obviously can't do that to it, you know, but tell me about the big, you know, let's the spoiler here. Tell me it's been out for a while. So let's talk about the Quicksilver thing. Was that always part of the plan? How did that kind of come to be? Yeah, it was a very early idea that, um, that I had with um, Mary Lovanos, um, my producer. Um, and it, yeah, so at Marvel, those those kind of big ideas of like, can we pull this character over? Can we like involve this storyline? Um, it's not. It, I'm always hesitant to do that. First of all, because I'm not I'm not like a huge comic book fan, so that's not the stuff that excites me necessarily. Um, I, I'm more interested in how do we make a man choking like feel like horrific and and as high stakes as as you know people blasting each other in the sky um but with this particular thing with the idea of evan appearing as um as pietro i immediately loved it and and part of it was because i knew it would sort of like blow fans minds but it more had to do with it felt like such a fabulous opportunity to um to encapsulate what what Wanda's feeling at the moment that that she at that point in the show she you know she knows she knows essentially what she's doing and she's continuing to to like you know hold this town hostage willfully but she also there's a lot that she doesn't know about herself and there's she has a lot of self-doubt and a lot of guilt and so the idea that she would that she would believe that this is her brother. Like that to me spoke volumes about how kind of, um, how sort of deep in the muck she is and how kind of like um, unstable and uncertain and 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 the, the sort of level of her pain and self-delusion. So for me, it really was about the story and it was about Wanda's psychology. Um, yeah, and we, we pitched it early and it took a very long time to kind of figure out if it, would be possible and if it was the right move. Um, Marvel's pretty careful about decisions like that. And I think that's why they're successful is because they are, um, 
because it's always, you know, is, is this the best, like, what's the best path? Like, let's not go for the splashy thing just cause let's make sure that it makes sense for the story. We'll just do one more. Um, thanks again for your time. So, so tell me, I like to kind of ask people if you were starting today with maybe limited connections and you just got a script, how would you, how would you kind of try to break into the business? What might be your path? Um, I think that the success that I've found has been when I, when I write something that is unusual and, and true to me and my voice. Um, that's often the advice that I give young writers is, is write your own voice. Um, it's not necessarily write what you know, cause I think writers can write whatever they want. Um, it's more like what, what is unique about you and your perspective and, and, and do what you can to channel that onto the page because that's what Hollywood wants is they want a fresh voice and a fresh take and they want innovation. Um, and I think, you know, I, I, can, I can sort of trace a lot of my success to this spec script that, that people always remember because it's, it's a very unusual premise. It's memorable in that way. So, so yeah, I would encourage anyone who's starting out um, who, who does, yeah, as you say, doesn't have connections and, and is to, is to be daring on the page and try and grab people's attention. Thank you for tuning in to the show. If it's your first time listening, make sure to hit that subscribe button and visit my new website for information on the YouTube channel, the blog, the podcast, and my new book, Ink by the Barrel, which takes advice from these 200 plus interviews and more at brockswinson.com. You'll see the link in the show notes. Thanks again.